0: Welcome to the show where we expose new perspectives on our ever evolving world through the lenses of various industries, cultures, and backgrounds. Our guests are disruptors, united by a common goal, to bring their purpose to life. Whether they're from the commercial world or third sector, from the global north or the global south, expect an inspirational journey that will transform your perspective on just what is possible. My name is Philippa White, and welcome to Thai Unearthed. Nazia has always believed that it's the storytellers of our world who hold the most power of all. The power to change minds, hearts, behavior, and even, very occasionally, the course of history. As she says, that's why it's so important for us to look carefully at the storytellers behind the narratives we're living by right now to ensure that they reflect our whole world and inspire us with perspectives different from our own. Having just written a book that is all about seeing the world from different viewpoints and providing stories on leadership from all corners of the world, I couldn't agree more. Which is why I am so thrilled to have had this conversation with Nazia. Welcome to Episode 78 of Thai Unearthed. Nasia is a multiple award-winning agency founder, creative strategy leader, and industry DEI champion. She most recently led Google's global DEI program, Rare with Google, aimed at raising diversity in the creative industries. Before that, she was global brand strategy director at Netflix, working on representation and global brand equity. Prior to going in-house, Nazia founded Rice Bowl Strategy, which, developed award-winning global brand positioning platforms for Spotify, Harry's, and Popeyes, among others. She was the founding global CSO of David in Sao Paulo, Buenos Aires, and Miami, as well as founding Ogilvy's Islamic branding practice. Nazia has been named one of the top five most awarded planning directors in the world. She's from Bangladesh and holds two degrees from Oxford. Today, you'll hear stories from her time at Netflix and Google. She'll explain why her successful strategic agency, Rice Bowl, is so important to her, and the answer isn't what you would imagine. And she'll bring to life the areas she's passionate about representation, creativity, cultural strategy and purposeful business. As a Thai alum from many moons ago, we'll also hear how our program had a lasting impact on her life. Without question, this episode will leave you with lots to ponder on. So throw on those running shoes or grab that favourite beverage, and here is Nazia. Nazia, thank you so much for joining us. It's always And it's just really great. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy. This has been on the cards for a very long time. So I'm glad we're finally doing it. Tell us, where are you? Where are you sitting? Because you you do travel a lot. So where where are you right now?
1: I do move around a great deal. I am in London at the moment in my little home office and looking out at the uh, very blustery autumn weather and feeling actually very happy to be here. I've been living in Singapore for the last year and a half and I've just relocated back to London. And it's just, I have to say, so lovely to be home.
0: Posy. Yeah, yeah. This <laughs> time of year is nice as well, isn't it? I have to say, living in Brazil, we don't have seasons. And mm-hmm. do you miss the seasons? It's nice to have, a, you know, a fire. and, and Absolutely. Like Especially Ozzy. when you're feeling a bit under the weather. It's lovely to just curl up with a cup of tea. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll be able to do that in a bit. <laughs> Well, we obviously had known each other for years. I mean, we've known each other for a long time. Tell us a bit about you and your background, obviously before Netflix, before Google, before Rice Bowl. What is your story, Nazia?
1: I love starting with that question because it's so broad and I suppose everyone approaches it very differently. <laughs> we met, you and I, for the benefit of your of your listeners, probably well over a decade ago now, yeah. um, sort of maybe a decade and a half was 15 yeah. years ago. Probably. Uh, yeah. When I was on your brilliant Thai program, which I think was, it's fair to say was one of the pivotal uh, moments in, in my career as an advertising strategist, where I really felt like there's uh, an opportunity for people in our industry to come together and, and do some good. Um, and it was the first time that I'd felt like that, that, that good could be tangible and it could be something I brought to the table. So I have to say thank you to you for that <laughs> opportunity. And, and you were the reason why I eventually ended up moving to Brazil a few years yeah, later. So when I got that job offer to move to Brazil, I thought, well, I, hang on. I know, I know Brazil because I went and did Thai there and I think I can do it. So you really gave me so much confidence to be able to take that leap. So wow. backtracking a little bit. I'm from Bangladesh originally. I was born and raised across many different countries. I spent some of my childhood in Bangladesh, some of my childhood in Hong Kong. I moved to the UK to study at university and ended up in the WPP Marketing Fellowship Program straight after uni, met some really, really wonderful people. At the time, the program was being run by John Steele, who is another huge champion of yours, Philippa. So he was very pro the Thai campaign and the Thai organization and, and your goals and encouraged us to apply. And WPP supported the people who went from the fellowship Onto doing Thai. So that was how that whole interaction came about. I was at WPP for about probably around 10 years across different roles. At the end, just before I left, I was chief strategy officer of David. So I spent most of my career at WPP as an advertising planner, as a strategist. Yeah. So I was a global planning director. At Ogilvy, and I was doing a lot of really interesting work for FMCG and CPG companies like Unilever, etc. And then there was an opportunity to set up an agency in Brazil as a sort of offshoot, sort of younger sibling of Ogilvy, and it was going to be called David. And I joined the founding team as the founding CSO, moved to Brazil, moved to Sao Paulo, learned Portuguese, um, got a house, (laughs) did all the things. (laughs) And then, yeah and then ended up living in Brazil for three years which were absolutely magical years um, after that I moved back to um, well moved away from Brazil moved to Malaysia for a few years long story was in Penang for a few years since then been sort of running both my own company as well as doing full-time gigs at various organizations on the client side so I haven't actually... Gone back into an agency side role yeah. for many years now, apart from running my own agency, which is, you know, a, an agency side role for sure. I also do stints at larger organizations, brands that, that need a bit more focused work from uh, a seasoned marketing consultant at at a senior level. That's my life. And I'm currently back in London after having spent a year and a half in Singapore working for Google.
0: Well, we're going to talk about that because it will be really, really interesting to know. But before we get to Google, because you touched on your agency very, very quickly, Mm. but obviously Rice Bowl is is a big part of you and your story. And I think it would just be really interesting to understand how did rice bowl come about and what is the, you know, what work have you done over the years and why is it so important to you? Absolutely.
1: Thank you. It's actually a very, um, it's a personal passion of mine, global brand positioning strategy. It sounds like quite a, an odd thing to, to have as a passion, I suppose, but I just really, really love positioning brands. I just find that work fascinating and so interesting and just so impactful if it's done right. And so when I left the advertising world, it was partly because I was burnt out. I had worked myself essentially to the bone. Running an agency is is never easy. Being a founder of a small startup, which is you know one of the world's most awarded agencies, is also not easy. But doing it in a language you don't speak is mm. incredibly difficult. So I had worked so so hard over the time that i spent in brazil sort of growing david from the ground and building out this wonderful team that we had and and the team are still doing just amazing work i'm so proud of them but I needed to take a break, and so I took some time off to think about what I wanted to do with my life and my career. And, I took a and that's when we just, yeah, that's when we get the
0: amazing pictures of you and your mom, and like <laughs> you in the most extraordinary places, wearing the most extraordinary outfits, and I just, oh God, it's like. Oh.
1: Yes, I I, I have traveled quite a lot. A lot of people identify as third culture kids now, but I think, you know, we're, you you and I are in that camp of people who've always had sort of a foot in in many different places and and, and have that ability to transition quite easily. And that's such a transferable skill when it comes to communications and marketing. And people forget that sometimes. I had to find a way of working that could combine both my passions in strategy, but also sort of allow me a bit of work-life balance. Running a a big global strategy team in an ad agency, was it seemed like that wasn't the right answer for me at the time. So what I wanted to do was set up something that was really quite boutique in nature, quite specialised and didn't do any of the creative work, but really focused on developing the brand platform that formed the positioning of any brand's global strategy. And my philosophy was very much that if you have a global brand positioning, that should be about taking a position. And uh, otherwise, it's kind of pointless. And so sort of really digging around within brands' sort of archives and, and histories and, and personalities to figure out what it is that they would be comfortable and passionate about taking a position on and um, how would that position potentially help to make the world a slightly better place. So uh, purpose-led branding was very much top of mind back then. I think it's had a lot of detractors in recent years, but I think the fundamental principle of companies should be producing things that we want to have in our lives and talking about them in ways that we feel are not interruptive but additive to our lives, I think that mm-hmm. principle is still valid. And for companies to want to do some good with their revenues is is always welcome, I think. And um, so I, I do my best to try and ensure that the work we do through Rice Bowl is socially positive in, in mm-hmm. its orientation. I'm very particularly proud of Rice Bowl for having won awards against when we've been up against quite large creative agency networks, for very, very large brands that we've worked on, we've been very lucky to have been approached by brands as as well known as Spotify, Netflix, you know, and we've done global brand positioning strategies for all our clients using the same methodologies that I've developed over the years. When I think about how how small we are as a team and quite how much work we can get done just by being really passionate about what we do. Yeah, I can relate. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know that scale isn't always necessarily the, the best indicator for for productivity. You know, we have a small, very nimble team, but we we do you know enormous bits of work that are incredibly. They just they bring me so much joy and pride to talk about. I love all my clients. They've all been just wonderful friends over the years. Um, yeah. We are in a very lucky position to not have to pitch for work because we tend to have more people. Uh, asking us to help them then we have bandwidth for, so we're in a very, very privileged position. And and I've kept Rice Ball going over the last few years, even while I've gone in-house at various organizations, yeah. because it's incredibly
0: important to me to do that. And so I think that that's a really good segue to, you have worked at Netflix, you have worked at Google. It would be great to understand what you did there and why you took on those roles, but I do want you to just touch a little bit more on why you kept Rice Bowl going as well. Like what was the importance there?
1: Great questions. Um, Very perceptive. When I was working with Netflix, they basically reached out to me to help them develop their global brand positioning strategy for the first time in the brand's 22 year lifetime. And I was contracted to essentially lead the global brand strategy piece for the newly created global brand team at Netflix. So moved out to LA to do that. And, uh, you know, had a very, very interesting time there because that was about the same time, sort of uh, towards the end of the first year, the social justice movement really kicked off in the US after the murder of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. And during that summer of reckoning, essentially, all eyes were on uh, the big corporations for how they were going to respond. And being part of a brand team at an organization that was so well known and was, you know, expected to have a point of view on the situation was a very, very interesting thing. And, you know, I I learned a lot. I was part of the team that helped to create collections of content that were specific to marginalized communities at the time, specifically the African-American community, the black community, but also the sense of all marginalized communities needing to to be seen at a content level. That was something that was just starting to be talked about internally anyway when when all of this happened. So it was a really interesting time uh, to be working at Netflix. COVID then happened, unfortunately. So, you know, that sort of put a spanner in the works and I, I moved back to the UK at the time, continued to run Rice Bowl. But then Google reached out with this very interesting idea of running a program that they had been running within their marketing organization. The program was called Rare, Rare with Google. And it was a program to essentially increase creative diversity at senior levels, at all levels in the industry, but focusing on senior leadership in our industry and, and essentially uh, trying to tackle the problem of of having this drain of really talented folks who leave at a certain point in their career because they don't see a path forward. You know, we've talked for many, many years about the glass ceiling that mm-hmm. women face, mm-hmm. but there is really truly a senior ceiling that people from marginalized or historically underrepresented communities face within, um, The marketing and communications and design and all creative industries where you know you reach a certain level in many organizations that might be sort of director senior director vp even but you can't really see a path forward beyond that because the top is still sort of off limits and
0: why is that from marginalized communities if people are managing to get to certain positions what is creating that i mean it's complex i'm aware but it is very complex. I think it comes from both directions, as it were,
1: from the top and from the individual themselves. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So wondering. essentially, dominant cultures are never going to choose an option that would in any way undermine their dominance, right? Yeah. So there is a culture of essentially... Paying lip service to diversity, equity, and inclusion up until the point where you actually have to make some decisions that might threaten your own dominance. And that's something that we've seen across the board, across all organizations. And you know, people call it wokewashing or performative allyship or all sorts of things, but ultimately we've seen that happen time and time again, especially over the last couple of years, where people have really pulled funding from DEI programs as the world's attentions have shifted to other problems. Mm-hmm. And what happens is that you realize that the people at the top who say these things are very, very important to the organization don't often feel very accountable in terms of be, of following through. They may actually personally believe in their importance, but often these things are not, they're not measured in the way that they need to be and they're not culturally ingrained the way they need to be. And so, you know, very few organizations are saying things like, you know, we commit to having you know, 50% of our leadership being from um, diverse communities or women or, you know, very few people are actually putting those stakes in the ground. And if you actually look at the numbers, some improvement has taken place for sure. But but very little compared to what, what could have been done. And, and certainly yeah. from my point of view, what should have been done. So that's from the organization's perspective. I think from the individual's perspective, what often happens is that, you know, you, you are fundamentally tired. You are weighed down by having ha- had to fight for years to not just progress that, you know, to, to even exist. To even be in the room is is a struggle. To carve out that space for yourself and to say to yourself and to everyone around you that I am valid, I exist here for a reason, I'm here because of my talents, I deserve to be here just as much as anyone else. That is an incredibly exhausting conversation to have with yourself every day and to have to do that constantly, particularly in moments of crisis. A lot has been written about this, but particularly in moments of crisis, the entire organization often looks to the people who represent marginalized communities in, in their employee base and say, can you tell tell us how to do this or can you teach us why this is and what happens is we're just putting more and more labor emotional and actual labor onto people who who really haven't signed up for this extra unpaid labor and so by the time you get to the top you're both you know a representative and a role model for marginalized communities yeah, you're right. also trying to do the job itself on a daily basis and do really well at it because you don't get a second chance right that you know you are, you are much more scrutinized and all of that just ultimately, it becomes very heavy and very draining. And so many of the leaders I've spoken to who choose to leave have said a combination, and they leave at that level, you know, that's quite senior, but not quite C-suite level. And they've always said things like, I just didn't feel that the organization had the support systems in place to, to get me to the next level. I just didn't feel like they were actually invested in my success. And I felt like I had given everything of myself to this company, whereas the company just saw me as, you know, an expendable employee. And that's something that I hear a lot is people from marginalized communities really feeling like they have expended so much of their own energy into these organizations that they see as almost familial structures. And then the shock and the the sense of, of having been fooled that almost comes with yeah. when you realize that you are just an employee yeah. and you are you are fundamentally dispensable with, you know, that's very difficult. So people tend to leave really, for all sorts of reasons.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. And I'm going to digress just a little bit before we get back onto the questions, just because it it has a lot to do with one of the programs that we've just launched. We've launched a global initiative, that is a scalable option for leadership training for companies. And it's about getting more human competencies into the hands of more people because that's kind of the root of what we thats what we do. And, and it's broken down into different areas. So one of them is around self-awareness and the importance of self-awareness with leadership and how, as a leader, understanding what fulfills you, who you are, your strengths and weaknesses, and just what you're about is, is fundamental. And in order to bring this to life, we we talk to different people. And, and one of the individuals we've spoken to about this area of self-awareness is a psychotherapist from Iraq. Mm-hmm. And she's a Kurd. So she's from the Northern part of Iraq in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. And she works with women, men, children who have been traumatized by war, ISIS attack in 2014, and people who are just struggling every day with real trauma. But how to move forward is actually rooted in self-awareness. That's what she does. And when we spoke, I've spoken to Asma many times, but what she told me, she said specifically in order to create more resilience and to create more stability in the region of Iraq and the nation of Iraq, but specifically for the Kurds. She said, the problem is the Kurds have grown up their whole life understanding that they're less than that they're not as good as. And she said, what we need to do, the answer is self-awareness. And she said, it's actually the oppressed that gives power to the oppressor. Once you have that power, once you know who you are, once you have that sol- like solid core, no one can get you. Mm-hmm. It, it just listening to you talk, and I just think for companies that understand these variables, listening to what you say about these leaders who just, a lot of lip service is given and actually, a lot of the time, I would say that, you know, I I would hope that many of the leaders of companies, sort of the C-suite, they, you know, you you have to be able to empathize, to be able to understand, you, ha- you have to have these conversations. You have to kind of put yourself in the shoes of what is it that people are facing and life is busy and and it's hard to do that. That's why we need people like you who, you know, run departments like this because help actually systematize these types of, this type of change, cultural change within a company. But just listening to you talk and you think, you know, for that individual who's struggling to kind of make it. And there's so many demons that you would have that you would face throughout your life. You know, you've been told since you've been a child that you're less than, you know, you're, you're dealing in a culture that, you know, you're constantly having to fight against things. So there's a lot of internal struggle that you have anyway. And you just think, you know, coaching, having self-awareness coaching to be able to build that core. I mean, that would be huge to be able to then give people the, the power to fight against. Possibly unknown oppression, but you know it's it's powerful, so anyway, just listening to you talk and
1: I love you know, that you've, you've you've spotted that and, and and I love the way you articulate that because it is incredibly powerful to allow people to see that they have this space in which they can be fully self aware and self-reliant when they're when they're coached into it and that is exactly the work that we were doing um, yeah. at rare we were essentially running coaching and training uh, with the world's leading academics, psychologists, um, you know, thinkers and getting all of that thinking to the cohorts of, of leadership that we felt were, you know, they had to apply to get in and, and, you know, it was very, very competitive, but they were, you know, the people who were most able to not just take on these learnings and then, you know, progress in their careers, but also impact. Many, many others because of the stage oh, in their, the career yeah. that they were at, you know. So it's almost like a, a pivot. You, you choose to to target this bottleneck because when you look at companies now, you see that at the bottom of the pyramid, there's a lot more diversity than there is at the top. The bottom has been dealt with quite well with intakes of, of very diverse new candidates from, from all sorts of places. But the top is still essentially quite homogenous. And it's that level just before the top that we're t- tackling because we know that when we can... Change leadership we can change essentially the culture of the organization totally. so we were doing this incredible work with you know as I said leading clinical psychologists and thought leaders in the space of DEI and you know we were talking to legal experts and all sorts of things and one of the um, one of the people we worked with very closely was Dr. Sana Asan, who's a clinical psychologist with the NHS in the in the UK and um, she helped us with So really framing this consciousness of woundedness and this idea Mm. that, you know, we are all essentially traumatized by these dominant cultures in which we're forced to operate and recognizing that trauma, not just at an individual level, but at a collective level and saying, you know, we are connected in this woundedness and that is a source of power and strength for us. Once we recognize that we have this community, we can we can really rely on each other. There's something so incredibly powerful about that, but also just there's power in giving each other and ourselves the care and the compassion to just sit with the uncomfortable feelings and to know that it's okay to, to not always be performing and to not always be incredibly productive and innovative and, and, you know, have, have results that, you know, are measurable by wall street as it were. And this is something that's very difficult. I think that there are many uh, thinkers within this space who have written about this. Daisy Oga Dominguez is another one. She, she's um, an incredibly articulate uh, thinker in this space. She's a practitioner of DEI and she's written about the inclusion revolution And she's also talked about this this idea that you cannot build cultures of perfectionism and, you know, productivity uh, at the cost of humanness, right? And empathy. And I know that this is what a lot of your book and your research has been about over the last two years, it's been really interesting to me to see that shift in understanding with people understanding that these short-term results that we're chasing aren't necessarily going to give us the long-term sustainability for our organizations that we need. Cultural headwinds are slowly shifting, but I don't think that they're they're shifting quite fast enough, to be honest, to hold on to this incredible talent that we seem to be losing as an industry. I think the advertising agencies in general as a model that, you know, fairly broken. Everybody seems to recognize that, you know, major things will have to shift. But, you know, holding on to really good talent while expecting them to work the hours and in the ways that they've been expected to work over the last few decades, I don't think that's sustainable. So yeah, there's, there's a lot that needs to be done here. But recognizing the cultural trauma that comes with being marginalized in these essentially dominant cultural organizations that are resistant to change is step one. And that's the work I was doing at Rare until unfortunately, obviously, I uh, had to
0: stop. Yeah. You know, we're talking about changing culture. I mean, culture, as we know, in any society is very difficult in any culture anywhere to move the needle to move something takes generations. Right. I think for anyone who's listening to this and just sort of understanding that, you know, having people go into certain, we're we're talking about changing culture within organizations, we're talking about changing the way that people, humans see themselves, see themselves within a culture and that takes time, that takes time and it, it takes a long time. And I think when we're looking at out behaving the competition, when we're looking at doing things differently from a behavioral point of view, we're not talking about two year timelines, we're talking about. 20-year, 30-year, 40-year timelines, because mm. it, it takes, it's moving a needle, but it's it's behavioral and that takes time. So I just, you know, I think anyone who's looking at 100%. this, you're in it for the long game. A
1: hundred percent. Unfortunately, most of these programs that have been cut across not just the tech world, but across the business world in general, have been a casualty to exactly that impatience that you're pointing to. There is a fundamental impatience embedded in the capitalist structure, right? So, you know, quarterly results and the city and Wall Street essentially looking at how these publicly traded companies are doing. And I don't think that that kind of metric or that kind of thinking, that kind of process uh, of measurement is in any way appropriate for the kind of work that you need to be doing on a human level because that is a longer-term thing. So something I often say is that the problems that these programs were set up to address were themselves about 500 years in the making. Mm, So do you really think that we're going to be able to show you a return on this investment uh, within the next couple of quarters? No, it's going to take generations, but you are going to have to consistently invest in that period of time you can't just stop and start thinking you know I'll just do it when it looks right when when the headlines are needed or whatever because these are people's lives we're talking about you need to invest for the long run to see you know the the kinds of career level change at a holistic level and that's one of the saddest things about these programs being cut and um, as you know I was Part of the mass layoffs at Google early 2023, and part of the reason for that is that these sorts of programs, and this isn't just Google, this is all tech companies, are having to to really look at which teams and and, and organizations are considered fundamental to the business, to the running of the business. And unfortunately, DEI programs are very often, um, you know, in the front line of being cut Marketing teams tend to be very badly affected in layoffs. Creative teams tend to be badly affected. I'm talking about tech in general here. But DEI teams, I think Twitter went from 30 to 2 people. You know, there's genuinely um, a sense that this is something in times of, of need, something we can do without. And and I would argue that it's ex- the exact opposite, that these are the programs, these are the people that you need to invest in in order for the culture to be robust enough to survive the onslaught of, you know, the competition and the market changes coming up in the future. So it is a real shame that culturally we haven't, we, we haven't woken up to this reality and we're also not holding these organizations accountable for um, essentially reneging on the promises they made uh, a few years ago. And that is a shame. But I think having more conversations like this is definitely helpful. And bringing to light the fact that this work doesn't stop, you know, we find other pockets in which to do it. But ideally, it needs to happen in the corridors of power. (laughs) This work needs to be done in the boardrooms, in the places where people are making decisions that affect billions of lives, not just in nonprofits or in, you know,
0: no, and I think also the you know, the, I talked about well, I, I mentioned it, it's like a line in my book, but just you know, the the, the D and I conversation as well. It's been in this pocket of I mean, you, you talk about NGOs and you talk about sort of charity and it's sort of this charitable obligation and it's like, but well, it's genuinely more competitive and I mean that's it's so it's obvious that, right? You have 100%. homogenized thinking and a whole lot of people coming from a similar background, having similar conversations from a similar class from a similar whatever and you're you're not gonna see things from a different point of view. I mean, that's you know, if you enjoy traveling, if you enjoy immersing yourself in other places, then you know how rich it is when you suddenly have an in-depth conversation with someone who comes from a completely different background and you think, oh, I've never even I know I know I didn't even realize that things were done like that. Purely from the point of view of being more competitive, it is a competitive advantage to have diverse. 100%. So and you need to if you're not hiring and also it's it's difficult because to I and mean, we're all like that too I mean I, I enjoy understanding different worlds I enjoy different perspectives but we are all guilty of being comfortable in the the world that we know and and at the end of a long day you know having conversations with people who think like us is is just genuinely easier and you go to the same kind of places on holiday because it is comfortable and you like it in the business world to then hire people who are different is hard because, you know, the references of what people are talking about is different and, and the mannerisms are different and the way that people behave is different. And so you have, you have your own judgments, which are human nature and normal. But again, it's like having to kind of overcome that and how to get through that. And that again comes down to, okay, so we need to be aware, we need to be aware of the, the system that's not working how can i push myself forward as a leader to ensure that i hire people who are completely different to me who think Mm -hmm. differently to me and that's a that is an advantage and so Mm -hmm. it's at every step of the way isn't it and it's having Mm to be be critical and to see that and to understand that 100 percent.
1: yeah yeah i really like what you say about you know it being every step of the way because this is that's the crux of it really is that inclusion strategy is everything that the company does you know it's not just one and done it's not just oh i've hired them and now you know i can say that this percentage of my organization is is x but it's, it's an a attitude. question of supporting them throughout their careers and and it really the inclusion level of a company is really shown through all the decisions that are made at the top right so you know who you invest in how you develop their careers, also the kinds of work you take on, the kinds of benefits and remuneration, the kinds of, you know, who you hire, of course, but also who you let go. It's very important to look at, you know, who you refuse to let go of because you believe they bring in a perspective that your organization needs and you will do whatever it takes to, to support them, you know. and. Unfortunately, often, you know, inclusion stops at just the recruitment stage where people just say, okay, right, I've done, I've done what I've been
0: asked to do now. They're on their own now. Yeah. Um, And that's interesting. Talk to us a bit more about that. What did you learn about diversity and inclusion from the point of view of what you experienced and what you saw with the mass layoffs?
1: Well, it's a very interesting position to be in, of course, because I was running a global program to Increase creative diversity at senior levels in our industry. I was kind of a, a representative of that because I was a senior leader in the industry from a diverse background. And then I was affected by the mass layoffs and, you know, the, the language always used is impacted. And what I realized quite quickly is that there's no such thing as a mass layoff, because everyone is an individual who experiences it very deeply, very personally, very individually, and there is no mass experience of it, right? However the policies around layoffs are are very uh, one-size-fits-all, unfortunately, and they are designed to be that way, to to not allow companies to be laid bare. Or uh, vulnerable to legal action or any, you know, uh, any other sorts of complications. So it essentially tends to be a policy of we're treating everybody the same way. Here's, here's the policy. Here's, the, you know, the way that, that that we've decided to do this. What's interesting, of course, is that the, the, the middle piece of diversity, equity and inclusion is the piece that comes into play here, equity, right? Not everyone comes from the same starting point in life. And so, When you actually want to achieve equality, you're going to have to treat people with equity to begin with, right? To make sure that they are being given the helping hand that they need so that they are starting at the same level or that they're able to operate at the same level as their peers, right? And that is often overlooked within the organisational culture. But when it comes to layoffs, it's very, very clear that the one-size-fits-all layoff model doesn't really serve uh, those who don't have the backing and the support of, say, for example, a strong familial network or generational wealth to fall back on or other sources of income or a spouse or a partner that can, you know, be the single income earner for a while. There are a lot of people from marginalised communities or historically on Represent communities who are the first in their generation and the first in their culture to be in these sorts of roles. Right. And they are often the people as children of immigrants or as first generation migrants themselves, they're often the people who are supporting large communities. And so when you talk about mass layoffs, you have to think about the fact that these layoffs impact different people very, very differently. Some people are going to be absolutely devastated financially and others will actually bounce back quite quickly. And the data is out there to show that women bounce back much, much more slowly. They tend to come back into the workforce at more junior levels than at which they were laid off. They tend to be laid off much more, I mean, across the tech industry layoffs, the mass layoffs that happened just recently between October 2022 and June 2023, I believe 45%, so just about half of the layoffs uh, were women. Now, we know that half of the employees in these companies are not women, right? So they are massively Overrepresented when it comes to being let go, but not when it comes to being sort of retained and supported. And so these are things that we really need to think about when we talk about mass layoffs is who are we letting go? What signal is that giving to, to the world and to people who want to join us in the future? You know, are they going to be looked after? Are they going to be protected? And do we actually understand who they are as an individual, not just an employee? What do they have going on in their lives? you know, because that yeah. needs to be considered when you're, when you're considering sort of mass life. So these are things that I've been sort of really thinking about quite a lot over the last few months for obvious reasons. And I have to say, I'm very grateful that I negotiated each time to keep my own company yeah. uh, go going it's because yeah. it's incredibly important to me. And this is a lesson that I would give anybody from a, um, a marginalized community who works in the, in, in the corporate world is to never, ever let one single dominant culture organization be your sole source of income because you never know what's going to happen further down the line and you are far more dispensable to them than then you realize and you will never be dispensable to yourself so if you work for yourself for even a small part of your income you are the person who is betting on yourself you are training yourself you are believing in yourself and supporting yourself and that bet pays off in the long run absolutely
0: 100% yeah. pays and off it, that is such an amazing lesson and yeah message to to give and i and and it's interesting cuz with a few of the employers that you had in theory they, they originally said that you couldn't continue with your business and you explained that you needed to for these reasons and they they accepted it and it's i think it's important to push back if you get the no and to explain why it's important. and to, Absolutely, to, yeah.
1: yes. I think if we're thinking about equity, then we have to think about it holistically. And, yeah. you know, the, the philosophy of allowing people to stand on their own two feet and make up for the fact that they don't have that generational wealth and they're having to build it from scratch now means that you have to see all the ways in which they, they are being supported to do that. And you can't cut off those ways for them. You have to support them. Yeah. And so I think the culture is you know, there is more understanding of this going mm-hmm. forwards. I mean, uh, there were senior leaders certainly at Netflix who also had their own consultancies going on the side who were very respected for doing that. I I really think that that's, that's something to look out for in organizations. Are they coming from a place of scarcity or are they coming from a place of abundance? Are they shutting down and saying, you can't work on anything else? Or are they saying, no, the more ideas you bring to our table, better we'll all do, you know. So those are things that I will look at much more carefully going forward as always.
0: Oh, Nazi, so, so interesting. We have come to the end, but I just, I'm curious, is there anything I haven't asked you that you'd like to tell our listeners? I I love that we touched
1: on the piece about self-reliance at the end, because that's something that I'm very much sort of thinking about right now. Yeah, you can't go wrong if you bet on yourself is is basically, (laughs) it's basically it.
0: Yeah. I think that's a great lesson.
1: I mean, at Google, there the, the resources are, are incredible. One of the talks that we had was by um, Venus Williams, who just came to mm-hmm. give us a, a talk on empowerment and being a, a woman leader in, in how to embody that. One of the things she said that really, really stayed with me was bet on yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can't lose. And that really has stuck with me. And I absolutely so would good. say that that's so my good. life's
0: mantra as well. Yeah. You know what? Totally. And that comes back to self-awareness. Yeah. You know, don't be somebody else. Don't let life be designed for you. Live a life of intention and bet on yeah. yourself. Oh, you've left me with goosebumps. That's a sign of a good podcast. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for your time. Oh, I'm so I hope glad. you feel better tomorrow. I'm happy it's not COVID and just the COVID vaccine. So you will, <laughs> get, back. You will get better quickly and uh, enjoy enjoy your yes. trip to Denver next week. Until next time. Thank you so much, Philippa. So great to be here. Yeah. Thank you. Hey everyone, this is Philippa again. I hope you enjoyed listening. Now this is your chance to get involved with Ty. If you're looking to create better leaders, better companies, and a better world, that's just what we do by helping leaders tap into their greatest asset, their humanity. We have a number of corporate programs that impact a range of people, from individuals at a company to 500 people around a business. Or check out my book, Return on Humanity, Leadership lessons from all corners of the world. You'll find the answers to how business can truly become a positive force while remaining at the forefront of competition. You can find all the information you need on all of this at ThaiLeadership.com. Get in touch and I can explain more. A huge thanks to Berna Vieira for co-producing this with me and for creating the music. I hope we'll meet up again soon.